baseball fans. It's time to take a trip from coast to coast across Major League Baseball. There it goes, a long drive. If it stays fair, home run. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung out and missed a perfect game. Fly ball deep left center. Grissom on the run. Yes, yes, yes. The Atlanta Braves have given you a championship. Listen to this crowd. Braves and baseball talk straight from the diamond. Here's Grant McCauley. Hello again and welcome to another episode of From the Diamond. I'm Grant McCauley and it's time for our weekly chat about what's going on with the Atlanta Braves and of course across the rest of Major League Baseball as we move one day closer to spring training. And depending on when you're listening to this, we might be knocking on the door. Pitchers and catchers reporting as that will be going down next week. And we'll be talking a lot about what's going on around the world of baseball and of course getting you set for when the Braves hit spring training on February the 12th. That's when pitchers and catchers will report to the brand new facility in Northport, Florida. And we'll be getting to all of that on this episode of the show. I want to remind you that you can subscribe to From the Diamond on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Leave those ratings and those reviews. I really appreciate those. And be sure you're following along on social media. On Twitter, at FromTheDiamond underscore is where you find the show. I am at Grant McCauley, G-R-A-N-T-M-C-A-U-L-E-Y. And, of course, he joins me for the starting nine each week as we count down the nine biggest stories from the world of baseball. He is Bill Rowland, and you can follow him on Twitter as well, at Bill Rowland. That's B-I-L-L-R-O-H-L-A-N-D. On Instagram, at From the Diamond, where you can find the show. And I am at Grant McCauley on Instagram as well. So make sure you're following me there. I'm going to give you a little bit of an inside scoop on what's happening in the world of Instagram in just a moment. Before I do that, though, make sure you've gone over to FromTheDiamond.com and checked out my Braves positional preview series, Infielders, goes up this week. That is part four of five. You can read about the Braves pitching staff. I did the bullpen. I did the rotation. I've done the catchers. You can read all of that at FromTheDiamond.com. Part four goes up this weekend. That'll be a look at the Atlanta infielders. And then next week, I will have a look at the Atlanta outfield for you to round out that five-part series. So be looking for that and all the other articles and good stuff in every episode of the show at FromTheDiamond.com. As we always start our show, let's take a look at the week that was in Atlanta Braves news. A few minor news and notes. Pitchers and catchers reporting on February 12th, and I'm doing a giveaway on Instagram. That's what I was mentioning earlier. Be sure you're following me for that, at Grant McCauley. And Adam Duvall signed 8x10 and six cards of Ronald Acuna Jr. and Freddie Freeman Like that post, and I'll pick a random winner from the likes on Wednesday, February the 12th. But you must be following me on Instagram, so I appreciate those follows, and I look forward to drawing that winner and giving them that signed Adam Duvall photo and those baseball cards, and that will happen on February the 12th as Braves pitchers and catchers report to spring training. Meanwhile, as far as actual Braves news, Atlanta signed Yonder Alonso to a minor league deal. Veteran first baseman had a down year last year. Former All-Star just a couple of seasons ago. It's a minor league deal with a spring training invite. He could be the first base insurance policy, if you will, for Freddie Freeman. Maybe filling a role similar to what Matt Joyce did last year as far as having a veteran bat on the ready. But when your primary position is first base, that becomes a little bit tougher. So could end up being a guy that signs that minor league deal, hangs out in AAA Gwinnett, and you have him ready if you need him. Or it could be a guy that might get a chance to play well enough to get a job somewhere else. We'll see how things pan out with Yonder Alonso. A handful of stats you might want to know about the newly signed Braves first baseman. Alonso has played parts of 10 seasons. The Reds, the Padres, the A's, the Mariners, the Indians, the White Sox, and the Rockies. So he has changed addresses quite a few times as he jumps in and joins the Braves. If he makes the big league club, that would be his eighth major league team. He hit 23 home runs for the Indians back in 2018 and 28 home runs, most of those for the Oakland Athletics in an all-star season in 2017, but batted just 199 last year, though he was a little bit better in Colorado after having a really rough time with the Chicago White Sox over the first 67 games of the season. But a primary first baseman, if you're curious, what kind of versatility does Yonder Alonso have? He has played a little bit of third base, but the last time that happened was way back in 2016 and a little bit of outfield as well, but the last time that happened was in 2013. So 
This does seem more like a minor league depth signing to me. Stranger things have happened. 26-man roster. Maybe you look at a guy that can bring some power off the bench and just be that veteran pinch hitter, which an extra spot on the roster doesn't hurt to have that guy, perhaps. So we'll see what Yonder Alonso is able to show the Braves in spring training. Also of note this week, the first arbitration hearing that happened was the Braves and reliever Shane Green, and the club won that case. So Green will get $6.25 million. The Braves had submitted. Green had been asking for $6.75 million. So not that far off were the two sides, but the club will pick up the win in that regard. And I think it's nice to have that little piece of business done as pitchers and catchers report next week and everybody can put it in their rearview mirror. And again, it wasn't a huge discrepancy between the two sides and $6.25 million for Shane Green, still a pretty good payday for him. In his final year of arbitration eligibility, he'll be a free agent at the end of the season. So that is what's going on with the Atlanta Braves, but it's time to turn our focus to what has been happening across the world of baseball. And to help me do that with our starting nine for this week is Bill Rowland. Welcome back into the show, Bill. Looks like we got a lot of stuff to jump into and a lot of interesting topics to cover as we get one week closer to spring training. Yeah, good to be with you again, Grant. Always a pleasure and uh, lots of stuff to talk about uh, on and off the diamond. All right, well, let's get it started with this. The big news is a big trade. Boston is set to send Mookie Betts and David Price to the Dodgers in a three-team trade that also includes the Twins. Betts, Price, and cash considerations go to L.A. Red Sox get outfielder Alex Verdugo from the Dodgers and righty Brewstar Gratterall from the Twins as right-hand pitcher Kenta Maeda is going to be heading to Minnesota. So we have a lot of things to unpack here in a three-team trade, but let's start with the Dodgers adding one of the best players in baseball, for at least one year. Yeah, if the Dodgers weren't already the the big favorites in the National League, I don't know how they're not now by a wide margin. Um, everybody's going to talk about Mookie Betts, and, mm-hmm. and they should. Uh, you know, uh, Chad Finn of the Boston Globe, uh, Boston.com, I was reading uh, earlier, did a great piece on where Mookie's single seasons rank all time in Red Sox history, and he's like got the third best behind a season of Yaz and a season of Ted Williams. Yeah. So, I mean, they're not just trading a guy who's like good. He's historically good for the Boston Red Sox. So if he's going to be that good for the Dodgers, I don't know how they're not again, so far ahead of everyone else. I've seen him listed as batting leadoff for them. This is a guy that could bat anywhere between third, fourth or fifth for just about any other team in major league baseball and drive in 110, 115, 120 runs, and they're going to lead him off in their lineup. It's crazy. If they don't win 100-plus games, now, again, barring injuries, as we always put that caveat on there, but if they don't win 100-plus games, if they don't win and get to the World Series, I'm not sure what else they can do. And, oh, yeah, that's not even talking about adding in a guy in David Price, who, if he's healthy, is just another stud in that pitching rotation that they have. Yeah, a lot of good things are happening for Los Angeles in this trade, which has been long rumored, and we've talked about it on this show. I felt like this was the one move that the Dodgers had to make after a very quiet winter where they went out and signed a handful of kind of you know low-key, bounce-back kind of options that would make their club a little bit better from a depth perspective. But to go out and finally address you know, losing a starting pitcher, uh, the the likes of Hunjin Ryu, who was a Cy Young Award uh, finalist and a guy that really was one of the best pitchers in the National League last year and being able to finally bring in a guy that has at least the pedigree in David Price as you mentioned if he's healthy to come in and be a contributor that of course is great but Mookie Betts is the centerpiece in this entire deal and the guy that I, you know we've been speculating about whether or not he would last this season in Boston would they hold on to him and and he's going to go to free agency and all he gets a draft pick or would you go ahead and trade him and try to maximize that value I guess my question is, do you think that they maximize the value or do you think that the list of teams that can conceivably give the Red Sox not only, I guess, a good enough prospect return, but also be willing to take David Price and the, what, $96 million that he's owed off of Boston's hands, that's going to be a pretty short list that may include the Dodgers and basically no one else. Yeah, and, and that's, I think, what it came down to. Again, as, as we've discussed here, uh, I am a Red Sox fan first and foremost, mm-hmm. and talking to a lot of my relatives that are still up in New England and a lot of my friends that are up there uh, still following this team, it, it has not been pretty uh, as far as the front office response has been uh, to the fans anyway. The fans are not happy. They are not thrilled with their new 
GM that they got from Tampa Bay because they feel like in trading Mookie Betts in the you know $30 million contract that they're treating the Red Sox like the Rays. And the Red Sox fans don't like being treated like the Rays. They know that their owner has money. They know that they can spend with the Yankees because they've done it. But you're right. The Dodgers sending them, again, the, the things that I've heard, you know, it's been – oh, we're getting an injured outfielder and an injured relief pitcher from the Dodgers and Twins for one of the best players in baseball. This is ridiculous. If you stop and look at it, though, if they keep Mookie and they don't make a run and he leaves in free agency, are they going? is the prospect, is the draft pick they're going to get going to be as good as the two guys they got in this deal? And I think objectively, you'd have to say probably no. So did they get enough? Not when you compare it to some of the other trades that you know big not big name players brought in, but it's more than they would have got if he walks after 2020. That's kind of the way that I looked at it, and I know that Boston Red Sox fans don't want to hear that, especially not even what one year removed now from winning the World Series. The last thing you want to think about is you know not only are they dealing with some of the uh, the scandal that of course Major League Baseball has been subjected to with the science dealing and whatnot, but. Oh, by the way, now one of the best players, I think, in Red Sox history, as you mentioned, he certainly had some of the best seasons ever by a player to put on a Red Sox uniform. He is going to be playing for another team this year. But I, I think you hit the nail on the head with the fact that, you know, Mookie Betts, I'm sure the Red Sox have had talks about the possibility of extending him, and he was determined to get to free agency. And I don't blame him because we're talking about a guy that figures to be at least the next $300 million player if he gets through this season healthy and has his pick of teams, and uh, clubs get to do some bidding on Mookie Betts. He figures to get himself a nice big contract, but he might be the next $400 million player, and that's a list that only has Mike Trout on it currently. And when we talk about Mookie Betts, pretty much the only caveat you have to put on how good he is in terms of best players in baseball is he's the best player in baseball not named Mike Trout. And that's a really good list to be on, and I think that free agency calling – And the fact that the Red Sox were looking at hitting him with a qualifying offer, getting a compensatory draft pick, and you know if Mookie Betts signs elsewhere, then uh, clearly that's not the return that you wanted either. And it's just kind of, I guess, mitigating your losses from a payroll point and just going ahead and moving on from David Price. But uh, you're right, and I've known Heim Bloom for quite some time. I worked in the Rays system about 10 years ago and met him when he was kind of a young up-and-comer as well. But I think he kind of walked into almost a no-win situation because you were going to have the contingent that says, you traded Mookie Betts, you didn't get enough for him. Why are we dumping salary? This is not the Red Sox that we know. On the other hand, you'd have a contingent of people that would say, well, we knew he was leaving. Why did we get nothing for him? So that's a really tough place to be as an executive, no matter how many years on the job you are. Yeah, no question. As an executive, your first loyalty is to the guys that are signing your check. And that's the owner in John Henry. And if he told him you've got to get under the the the, the threshold, the yep. tax threshold, then that's what he has to do. And John Henry's the one that has to go out there and and talk to Red Sox fans and tell them that this was the thing. He shouldn't then leave it to Bloom to have to go out there and do that. Now, I'm not saying that that's what John Henry is going to do when they get to spring training, but there will be a lot of questions from a lot of reporters, fans, et cetera, of why this went down. And I think it's incumbent upon John Henry to be the one out in front explaining why they made this deal. Whether he does it or not remains to be seen. But to me, in my mind, it's his responsibility to do it, not on Bloom, not when you trade a guy like that. You want to trade a, a, a number five pitcher in the rotation for a backup shortstop? I don't need John Henry to talk to me. You trade a centerpiece of your franchise, I yeah. need to hear from the owner. I think you do too. I mean, those are not the kind of players that you're just dealing every few years and, oh, well, they were a contributor or they were an all-star or maybe they won some kind of individual award. But Mookie Betts was a guy that seems to be on a trajectory to be one of the great players in the game for a very long time and has already established himself as such. So it's hard to see one of those guys leaving town, whether that's by trade or by free agency. That wasn't going to be a fun time. Let me ask you this, and I don't want to blindside you with it, but I was just thinking about it over the last 24 hours or so. But Mookie Betts is being traded to the Los Angeles Dodgers, a team that the Red Sox beat in the World Series in 2018. And also, I would imagine that that 2018 World Series is currently being investigated by Major League Baseball to determine what, if any, sign stealing was going on during that season and perhaps during the postseason by the Red Sox. And we already know the L.A. City Council stance on what should happen to the 2018 (laughs) World Series trophy. But let me ask you, Mookie Betts is going to be walking into that locker room. I would imagine this topic might come up with some of his new teammates, would it not? 
Oh, absolutely. I, I think they're definitely going to ask. And I think if you look at it, though, the Red Sox took two of three yeah. in L.A. Um, in that World Series. So in my mind, at least in 2018, if you go back and watch that series, the Red Sox, in my opinion, getting hot or whatever it may have been, they were the better team over the five games. I mean, they nearly had a sweep of that series. Right. So I'm sure Mookie will get asked about it. I'm sure Major League Baseball is still looking into it. But deep down inside, I think that if you looked at it, again, objectively, and, and I can't because as a Red Sox fan, uh, I'm probably biased in the fact that I thought watching that series, they were the better team. Mm -hmm. Even after hearing about the sign stealing, I still go back and say, well, but they still won two out of three on the road you know, there in L.A. They weren't able to have their setup there in L.A., so it's a little bit different than you know if Houston was uh, yeah. you know, taking all these games at home, which is odd because – you look at the last World Series that Houston just lost. They lost every single game at home. Yeah, nobody won a home it, game. It's just strange. Yeah, it was just odd. Yeah, it was extremely odd. And and looking at the the overall totality of this entire thing, which we'll talk a little bit more about this because, as we've mentioned many times, it's not going to go away anytime soon. But I wonder if just maybe the overall hurt feelings from the Dodgers side of losing both in 2017 to the Astros and 2018 to the Red Sox, that just might not be the ideal situation for Mookie Betts to walk into from an interpersonal relationship standpoint to start with his new team. But I think all things being equal, the Dodgers know they just got one of the best players in baseball. And I think they'd like to maybe go win the World Series in 2020. And perhaps some of those feelings will take care of themselves. Yeah, I think all will be forgiven if they get a World Series title uh, come late October. I don't sure. think they'll worry about what Mookie and them were up to in 2018. Uh, all right, that's not all that the Dodgers were up to. They keep moving pieces around. They are also going to trade outfielder Jock Peterson, right-handed pitcher Ross Stripling, and outfielder Andy Pages to the Angels. Infielder Luis Arenafo is headed to the Dodgers after getting Rendon. It looks like Anaheim is finally trying to figure out this rotation. As we've talked about before, uh, they've brought in Dylan Bundy. They now add uh, Stripling to this. Are they now starting to make waves and enough moves in your mind, Grant, that maybe we should talk about them being a wild card contender? They're going to have Mike Trout there for quite some time, but you want to go ahead and max out the best years of the best player that you're ever going to have in your franchise's history. And maybe a guy that's going to go down as one of the best players in all of Major League Baseball history with the, the road that he has been on. They've got an owner who spins, but you know, last year, looking at that rotation especially, they had one pitcher that surpassed 100 innings in the Angels' uh, entire staff last year. And that's just not going to uh, lend itself to having any kind of success because you just you have to have more stability than that. You can't ask your bullpen to do all that much. And clearly another reason why you don't have a whole bunch of guys throwing over 100 innings was because you couldn't keep guys either healthy or competitive and consistent in the rotation, and you had to keep changing it out over and over and over. But Ross Stripling has been a really nice pitcher for the Dodgers, but more of a swing man who's wanted to start and for some reason always kind of seemed to be the odd man out, not because of talent, but just yeah, more so I think the role that he could play and the fact that they have a lot of depth. That's one thing the Dodgers had a ton of. This is a great opportunity for Stripling, and he doesn't even have to move all that far, just over into Anaheim. Julio Tehran, the former Brave, also joining that rotation. Dylan Bundy, who's got a ton of talent, but has got to figure a few things out. At least they're out there trying to get some guys with upside or with the ability to eat innings, a guy like Julio, and Ross Stripling, a guy who might be able to put together a pretty good season as a starter if you give him 31-32 starts. So I like those moves. Anthony Rendon certainly highlights their winter. There's no two ways about that. But it does look like the Angels are trying to do some things to get themselves back up toward the top of the American League West race or maybe at the very worst, you know, start trying to crack into one of those wild card spots and who knows what could happen. You can get into the wild card and go a long way these days. And you look at, at what happened with the trade that we just talked about, as far as it strengthens the Dodgers. And I feel bad for Jock Peterson because now his, uh, you know, his odds of playing meaningful baseball in October have gone down quite sure. a bit going from one LA to the other LA, but they can put him in. He's not a guy that's going to hit for a tremendous average. He's, I think, like a career 245 hit or 250 hit or whatever it may be. But he's got pop. He's probably going to hit 30-plus home runs in that lineup. They can put him either in front of or behind Rendon or Trout or however they want to line it up. And they now suddenly have three guys in the middle of their order that can all hit it. Um, so I think they're going to be better. But you think about the trade. The Red Sox – the, the Rays and the Yankees, obviously, in the AL East, were all going to be battling there. Yeah. You, 
you could probably take the Red Sox out of that equation now with the, with the moves that they've made. You look at Minnesota, they've obviously been the class of the AL Central. They will remain that way. We've talked about it. We're not convinced that we know what what's going on with Cleveland. We're not really sold, obviously, on Detroit or Kansas City. So why not? Why not Anaheim? Why not the Angels to be able to make a run at the wild card with this new lineup? Now, they may have to win a bunch of games, eight to seven, you know, six to five. They're not going to be, you know, doing the two to one thing. But the, is there, are there other teams out there that you look at and say are demonstrably better than what the Angels have put together right now? And they would have no shot at being that second wild card. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And I will say this, just kind of looking at the outfield depth chart for the Angels, which, of course, is highlighted by Trout, but also Justin Upton, who signed a long-term contract to stay in Anaheim. Uh, So right field really looks like that would be the spot you could put Jock Peterson. But the Angels' top prospect, Joe Adele, who's one of the best young players in baseball, I kind of wonder what this means for him in some ways because uh, clearly if he was in their plans for 2020, they've got a whole bunch of players that could – uh, play a bunch of different positions in the infield and you've got Albert Pujols who's going to play some first base but going to need the DH so that doesn't really leave a open and clear space for one of the best prospects in baseball which I'm sure the Angels are happy to have and would love to see him be a uh, running buddy for Mike Trout for quite some time too and maybe it's a possibility that that he gets flipped or Peterson gets That's flipped true. I mean it's still there's still a lot of time and if they look at it and they think Adele is ready to play I mean, Peterson would look good in some other teams' lineups as well. Again, he's not going to hit for average, but that power bat, a lot of teams would would love to have a guy that can hit 30, 35 home runs to plug in there, even if he's only going to hit 250. So they may not be done. The, the Angels may have another move up their sleeve one, sleeve one way or another. All right, hitting third in our starting nine right now is a question that kind of is born from the trades that we've seen agreed to over the past 24 or so hours, maybe 48 hours at this point as the news of the Mookie Betts trade came down on, I believe, what, uh, Thursday. Uh, as I look or well, what, Wednesday maybe, actually. Um, be that as it may, as the news came down about the Mookie Betts trade, it got me to wondering, he's heading to the Los Angeles Dodgers. Who is the next star to be traded? And... Chris Bryant, Nolan Arenado, both names that we talk about seemingly weekly on this show. Francisco Lindor is another name who's come up not quite as much. But, Bill, if you had to pick between the three of those men, who do you think is the most likely to go next and why? I tell you what, Grant, when you sent these the, the topics that we were going to go over to me, I went back and forth on this a couple different me times. Too. I finally ended up with, I think it's going to be Chris Bryant. Me too. I I just have a feeling that the Indians are going to be satisfied with holding on to Lindor into June and July to see who's in contention. And and who knows, maybe they'll be in contention and they'll want to keep him to see if they can make a run. But I think they feel like they're not going to get value for him right now because some teams out there aren't sure if Lindor puts them over the top where in June and July, they may think that he does. So I think it's going to be Chris Bryant. Look, it's just a matter of figuring out who he's going to go to. Will it be the Nationals? Are they going to be satisfied with with Kaiboom coming into the the season? Or uh, as Drew Cabrera, is it going to be the Braves? Are they happy with what they have? Um, Obviously, L.A., the Dodgers are out after getting bets. But how about Texas? They thought they had Rendon. They went to bed thinking they had Rendon, thinking they had a guy to open up their new stadium. Well, now they don't because he ended up with the Angels. So maybe they step in at the last minute if the price is good for Chris Bryant. So I think it's going to be Bryant. But, hey, why don't we go back to a couple weeks ago when we talked about it, send Chris to Colorado, send Nolan to Chicago, and then both sides are happy. Right, and you could take two of these three guys off the board as well. I think that I agree with you totally on Chris Bryant being the most likely one to go next because I I just feel like that's a trade that if it was – announced tomorrow or this time next week or at some point during spring training would not surprise me at all. And I guess I can't really say that Arenado getting dealt would surprise me, but I think he's the most difficult of the three players to deal because he has the entire uh, leverage on his side when it comes to a full no trade and he can opt out after two years. Now, I don't think the two years will necessarily scare a team away, but it might make it harder for the Rockies to settle on a price of what they believe is commensurate with giving up the face of their franchise. And that's the position that they've all put themselves in uh, by running the Rockies the way that they have the last couple of years, which has not exactly been, I would imagine, some of the things that they promised Nolan Arenado at that time. That aside, 
I think that Francisco Lindor is a guy that could stick in Cleveland for the entirety of this season, and maybe he ends up in the Mookie Betts boat next year where he gets traded in the winter. Or like you said, if the Indians fall out of the race and don't feel like they can contend in the American League Central, which is not a given for any team. I know the Twins are going to hit a ton of home runs, but I've got some questions about that Twins pitching staff. And who knows? I mean, the Cleveland Indians still have enough arms, even after trading Corey Kluber, to make this thing interesting. White Sox are a lot better. Uh, Not going to see a whole lot coming out of the Royals. But the overall race in that division, even with the Royals and the Tigers down at the bottom, there's still conceivably three teams that could fight each other throughout the summer. And that makes me feel like Lindor has the best chance of sticking around on his own merits, whereas Nolan Arenado might just kind of have to play the waiting game to find the right trade that makes him happy enough to waive his no-trade clause and makes the Rockies happy enough to take what they get in return. And, and how much did the Mookie Betts trade change the dynamic for any of these guys getting traded when you see what the Red Sox got back for him? As you mentioned, all of them have more years. They're not on their last deal, so yeah. obviously they should bring back more. But the the bar has kind of been set as far as hey, a one-year so. Two years, if it's Bryant or, or Lindor, is going to be a little bit more. But how much more are teams going to be willing to do when they can, again, wait till the offseason for yeah. these guys and say, hey, this is what the Red Sox got. Your guy isn't as good as Mookie, so we're this is what we're willing to do. However, I will say the one thing about the Mookie contract as we kind of you know, wrap it up and put a bow on talking about that for a good portion of time here is that he was attached to a salary dump and only had the one year. So that was really two big Fair. factors, I think, that may have changed the value that went back to Boston, whereas Bryant and Lindor, I think, could be traded on their own merits in the two years that they have, and clubs will be happy about that. Even if we start talking about this again next winter and they only have one year left, I still think they might pull a little bit more in the overall prospect return if they're not attached to a salary of about $100 million that some club is trying to get rid of. And obviously the Indians don't have one of those, and I doubt that the Cubs – uh, we'll be using Chris Bryant to move Jason Hayward, but hey, stranger things have happened. That's a great point. All right, in a move that surprised absolutely no one, I would imagine, Pete Rose has once again petitioned for reinstatement to Major League Baseball. His lawyers delivered a 20-page plea to have Rose's name removed from the permanently ineligible list so that Rose would have a chance to be voted in the Hall of Fame. The case was based on the inconsistent discipline from both the Astro sign-stealing and the steroid scandal. Rose, of course, was banned from baseball for gambling back in 1989 by then-commissioner Bart Giamani. I'm interested to see where this goes, but I don't expect the ball to move very far because Rob Manfred thus far has really not given Pete Rose anything that he might have expected when there was a commissioner change because Rose didn't get very far with Bud Selig, obviously. He was allowed to attend a couple of special events, but the ban very much remained in place. And I said this on social media when the story came out, and I don't want to spend a ton of time on it, but it's worth bringing up. You know, Pete Rose is a guy that I think is always kind of taking the opportunistic look to try to find something that will help leverage him back in, even if it has nothing to do with his own actions, his own decisions, and his own discipline. And I felt like this was a... I've been waiting three decades for somebody to screw up as bad or worse than I did so that I could point out that, hey, I'm not so bad. That's the way that that read to me, or what I felt when Pete Rowe's reinstatement story popped up and you know, some of the things that the lawyer said. I'm not saying that there's no merit to the cases. I think you and I both agree that you know, the sign-stealing scandal and the discipline left a little bit to be desired, if not a lot to be desired in some cases as not being strenuous enough and We don't even have enough time to start going into doling out retroactive justice for the steroid era. But I don't think that any of those things have anything to do with Pete Rose willingly time and again breaking baseball's one written rule that's posted on every clubhouse door when you walk in, and that is you cannot bet on baseball. He did it time and again. He lied about it for a long period of time. And then when he finally came clean, it was so that he could write a tell-all book and make money off of it. And this after moving to Las Vegas and goodness knows what was going on in the interim of all that time as well. So I don't see anything changing about Pete Rose's situation because of the Astros or because of the steroid scandal. What do you think? Yeah, I I don't think it'll change either. I understand the argument from him and his lawyers from his perspective. I get it. The the guy is 79. 
he understands there are not too many more chances for him to be honored during his lifetime. If they were going to go this route, here's the only thing that I would ask Major League Baseball to do. Joe Jackson gets his chance first without Pete Rose on the ballot. Okay. They let they let Joe Jackson have a one-year they, – they pull his band because there's way more evidence that Joe Jackson did not help set up the 1919 World Series mm-hmm. – than there is for Pete Rose being, uh, you know, contrite about betting on baseball. I mean, let's be honest. So I would say, you know what, Pete, here's what we're going to do. We're going to let the voters decide on guys that have been banned. Joe Jackson gets his shot first. You get it next year. If, if they decide that it's okay, I don't think they will, but that's how I would do it because I think Jackson's case is much more intriguing to be eligible for the Hall of Fame than Pete Rose's. That's a really great point. And just for those who have uh, pointed this out or, or also others who've kind of wondered, Pete Rose's ban being lifted and being taken off the permanently ineligible list, that is something that the Hall of Fame, a couple of years after Rose was banned, they passed a secondary rule. The Hall of Fame, which governs itself, that if you're on the ineligible list, you are not eligible to be voted on for the Hall of Fame. Meanwhile, right. part two of that, Pete Rose's writer's eligibility would not be in play here at all. He would go on to the special committee ballot, and they would have to figure that out. And there's no guarantee that they would vote him in. There may be a lot of people that look at it and say, hey, he may be off the band list, but I don't approve of what he did, so I'm not going to vote for him because he's still got to get 75% of that panel as well. So it's not a given. I know why he's doing it. I understand it, but I just have a hard time having any sympathy whatsoever for Pete Rose for the way that, in large part, he has handled the lifetime ban, which came down because of decisions that he himself made. Yeah, correct. He, he is responsible for why he is banned from baseball. Nobody else. Uh, again, you can go back and, and relitigate 1919, but mm-hmm. I, I still look at it and say that, yeah, there were guys on that team that definitely threw that series. I still am not convinced that Joe Jackson ultimately was one of those guys. That's a really great point. Speaking of a baseball legend, Hank Aaron sat down with Craig Melvin on NBC's Today Show and was asked if he thought that the punishment fit the crime for the Astros sign-stealing scandal and provided his answer there. And then the secondary question, the follow-up is, how does Hank Aaron feel about Pete Rose being on the outside of Cooperstown looking in? And this is what the baseball great had to say. Take a listen. Were you surprised? I was surprised. They didn't steal signs back in your day? They did. They didn't steal them that way. Do <laughs> <laughs> you think the punishment fit the crime? No, I don't. I think whoever did that should be out of baseball the rest of their life. And that led to the topic of Pete Rose before he appealed the lifetime ban. Pete Rose, should he be in the hall? No. So if you bet on the game, you don't deserve to be in? No. Those are the words of Hank Aaron, baseball's all-time home run king until 2007 when Barry Bonds broke his record. That's another interesting story for another time because of the the way that all of these stories seem to converge through Hank Aaron's interview here and his words, his opinion about the Astros, his opinion about Pete Rose, and, of course, Barry Bonds involved in the steroid scandal breaking his record for most home runs in Major League Baseball history. There's an awful lot of stuff going on here, Bill. But let me ask you, as we've talked about this a lot, a strong statement from one of the all-time greats. What did you make of Hank Aaron's opinion on the Astros, on Rose, and the connection or the lack thereof between the two things? First off, I love Hank Aaron. I love the fact that he's still willing to speak up and and take a stand. A lot of guys in his position would have just said, you know, hey, Major League Baseball did what they needed to do and left it at that. So I love the fact that he doesn't care. He's going to give his opinion, and that's it. I actually talked to a lot of my baseball friends about this, not guys in the business necessarily, but just baseball fans. And almost all of them to a person agreed with Aaron. I was a bit surprised at that. Maybe not hundred percent to the point of actually banishing guys, but a lot of them certainly who haven't followed the story as closely as you and I granted and and people that listen to this podcast that are really heavily invested baseball fans. Mm -hmm. They were surprised that there wasn't more punishment for the players. Now, me, I'm not sure how you would go about banning, what, 10, 15, 20 guys from yeah. baseball. You might as well shut the Astros down at that point. Um, so I understand from baseball's perspective, the management perspective, the business perspective of not going through and punishing these guys. But it also leaves a little hollow feeling about 
okay, they did this and nothing happened to any of the guys that were involved. Yes, Hinch got fired. Yes, the GM got fired. But the guys that were actually doing it, nothing happens to them. And a lot of my friends that are baseball fans, and again, not as serious as you and I and some others, just feel a little, there's just something that doesn't sit right with them about this. Yeah, I think there's a lot of things that don't sit right with a lot of people who are either connected to the game, directly in the game, fans of the game, whether casual or hardcore, it doesn't really matter. I mean, everybody's got thoughts and feelings about uh, the ethics and the morals behind it, I guess, if you want to break it down to brass tacks when it comes to the decisions that players made to subvert the competition and use technology to do it, and that was never intended to be the thing. I, I just think it's fascinating, and we talked about this just a, a moment ago when it comes to Pete Rose, how he just keeps coming up like a bad penny. You know, he just doesn't quite, you know, take the message and say, okay, you know what, uh, I did the crime and I'm going to do the time because the rules are the rules. He's been trying to find a loophole to get himself back in. And you know, that argument, whether it be from Pete Rose himself or from the fans that uh, feel like he served his time or, or whatnot, I get some of the merits of that argument, but I just have a hard time looking at, you know, the discipline that's been handed down for uh, the sign-stealing scandal, which, again, to me, leaves a lot to be desired, and perhaps there will be more behind door number two. I don't know. This whole thing's got to play out with the Red Sox as well. But long story short, that really has nothing to do with the Rose case on its own merits. So Hank Aaron being able to um, uh, speak candidly on this is something I really appreciate, and maybe for a lot of folks, hearing somebody of that magnitude deliver his thoughts on it might carry a little bit more weight than the uh, random radio hosts and podcasters and bloggers and writers and folks that are uh, spewing our opinions on a regular basis uh, when it comes to social media and whatnot. Yeah, I'd be curious to know if there were more guys like Hall of Famers like Hank Aaron, if there were other guys uh, in the Hall of Fame that are still alive and with us that actually reached out to Major League Baseball and said, what are you doing? You know, what, how can you let this go on? I would really be interested to see if there were other guys that that have the same feeling as Aaron and if they made any attempt to reach out to Major League Baseball because, really, they're ultimately the keepers of the game. They're yeah. the ones that the legacy lives on through them, and they probably feel like, in some degree, their legacy is tarnished because of what happened. So I, I wonder if there aren't more guys that feel that way that just haven't either gotten in front of the cameras or just have decided, you know what, it's probably not my best interest to say anything. Yeah, no, they may not have said anything yet, but as spring training cranks up and you start seeing some of these guys maybe around the ballpark a little bit more and we get into the season, I imagine a lot more opinions of both players past and present uh, will be coming out in larger numbers than we've seen over the winter as people are still kind of gathering information and maybe in a lot of ways forming exactly how it is they feel about it, whether they don't really know what to think, maybe they're a little bit too angry and don't want to talk yet, or maybe they're waiting for the other shoe to drop in a lot of ways because, again, Major League Baseball still has an active investigation ongoing. So it'll be interesting to see as everybody gets kind of back into the swing of things in the season how exactly the story unfolds and what new roads will be going down and if any of those roads will lead us to anything better than we found over the last month or so. All right, the team most involved in this sign-stealing saga is Houston. Of course, they have their new manager in Dusty Baker, they now have a new general manager as they have hired James Click. He comes over from Tampa Bay. He's got a pretty talented team. Is he the guy to navigate them through these choppy waters? Well, I think he's pretty – he comes from good stock when it comes to executives because clubs have been raiding the Tampa Bay Rays for a number of years for some of the baseball minds that they've had in that organization. Of course, we talked about Heim Bloom earlier. Andrew Friedman out in Los Angeles was the first, I think, big name, if you will, as far as Rays executives – to uh, move on and take a bigger market job, but they had to find someone that they believed would be able to run a very advanced, I think, baseball department that the Astros have created. It's not just about the stealing of the signs. I think that the Astros were a club that was very much in the information and technology and the analytics of the game beyond what uh, has unfolded over the last month or more, or really, I guess, over the last three years. But uh, Clicks, uh, he's a Yale guy, so not uh, surprised to see another Ivy League guy getting a shot here. But I think that they did have to find someone who really um, checked a lot of boxes when it came to trying to maintain some stability of the things about the way the Astros were built that they do take you know, the right amount and the proper amount of pride in from turning that club into a winning franchise the last few years that has nothing to do with trash cans. So 
Uh, Clicks in his early 40s. He's been in baseball ops for the Rays. He was their president of baseball operations for the last three years. So he worked his way up and gets an opportunity, but this is going to be one that's going to come with its fair share of, I would imagine, challenges. We'll call them that over the next few years. You mentioned him being an analytics guy. Before he joined the Rays, he was with Baseball Perspective. So he's definitely an analytics guy, which they're going to need having been here in D.C. and covering Dusty Baker. Dusty Baker is not necessarily an analytics guy when it comes to lineups and platoons and all those sorts of things. So it's a nice yin and yang, I think, with their 70-year-old manager to have a 42-year-old guy now as their GM who is going to use those type of things. And as you mentioned, Houston has been at the forefront of that with spin rates from their pitchers and all those different things that they do. So, look, he's very well respected a lot around the league. I think it's a great hire for the Astros. Again, I wish him luck because it is going to be a brutal season there in Houston as far as the the speculation on everything that's going on. But hopefully he's got some thick skin and and he'll do okay with them. Hopefully his public relations department will earn its keep this year because they are going to be challenged as much or more than any baseball team's PR has been in quite some time. So let's move on from all of that stuff and kind of get back to uh, the player side of things. And we know that injuries can change plans for teams and do, as a matter of fact, each and every year. And those plans can change in a hurry. Yankees are now down one of their starting pitchers. New York is going to lose lefty James Paxton three to four months as he had surgery this week to remove a cyst on his back. And that's a bit of a blow to a team that just signed Garrett Cole and was hoping to have this rotation settled because that was maybe the one area that you could look at the Yankees last year and say, I don't know. And it's not easy to find those areas on 100 win teams. Grant, I tell you, I really feel awful for the Yankees at this point. (laughs) I mean, I don't know how they're going to survive with Cole and Severino and Tanaka and Happ as their top four while Paxton is out. I mean, my gosh, this team may only win 98 to 100 games instead of 105 to 110. Yeah, it's tough. I feel bad. Honestly, I feel bad for Paxton more than anybody because you don't want to see any of these guys have to go on the injury list and miss a couple months of a season. I like it when everybody stays healthy. But I'm not worried about the Yankees. I guess all my Yankee fans that sit there and scream and tell me how great Jordan Montgomery is going to be, I have no idea how good Jordan Montgomery is going to be. They tell me he's going to slide in and be the fifth starter, and there's nothing to worry about. So I'll listen to them. They seem to know more than I do. So uh, Jordan Montgomery, I guess your time is now, and, and welcome to the Yankees' fifth starter spot, I guess. Yeah, they're going to have to figure out something in camp. And and clubs do this each and every year where you bring some young arms. Maybe they find a a couple of veterans that still have yet to sign or they make a trade for some team when uh, they discover that, hey, there's an arm that's not going to make another club and maybe we'll bring him in and just try to fill the gap until you can get Paxton back in. But the timing of it, obviously, it's never ideal to lose somebody for three to four months. But when you just spent three or four months, you know, sitting through the winter and hoping to have everybody at full speed when you come to spring training, which is you know less than a week away for clubs now. Uh, this is probably not what the Yankees were planning to lose a 15-game winner. And one of their big acquisitions last year, a guy that is going to be counted on or was going to be counted on to help kind of carry that load and not put it all on Garrett Cole's shoulders. But I will say this, when you sign a $326 million contract, I guess there's going to be a lot on your shoulders. So mm-hmm. Garrett Cole is going to have to come out and do his Garrett Cole thing. And these other guys, I think, just need to stay healthy. And the Yankees will probably be in pretty good shape. Yeah, I can't imagine that come May we're going to be sitting here going, wow, boy, if the Yankees don't get Paxton back in a hurry, they're going to be in a lot of trouble in this AL East race. I, I, again, I think they're going to be fine when it's all said and done. Yeah, I agree with that. All right, speaking of the Yankees, or at least a Yankee, or in some people's minds, the Yankee, Derek Jeter, of course, went into the Hall of Fame, but it wasn't unanimous. There was one guy that didn't vote for Derek Jeter as a first ballot Hall of Famer. Now, the Baseball Writers Association of America has released some of those ballots publicly. 315 are out there. All of them voted for Jeter. So there's one of the 82 remaining that didn't. Will we ever know who that was? And quite frankly, Grant, do we care? I don't know that we care, and I don't know that we'll ever know who exactly it is, but it is thus far one of the great mysteries in Hall of Fame voting and something that gets a little tiresome when we start talking about the voting totals. But the Hall of Fame tracker that Ryan Thibodeau runs over on Twitter, and I wanted to see what his final count was. It looks like he has 339 ballots that he has listed, the full ballots that are not public, uh, 69 of those, six of them are not fully public, I should say. 
Six are anonymously in the tracker for him, but every single one of the ballots that he has in his tracker has a Jeter vote on it. So we're still looking and waiting to perhaps get the answer to this thing, if indeed, to your point, anybody still cares because Derek Jeter just went into the Hall of Fame, and I don't think that Derek Jeter cares that one person didn't vote for him, nor should he. No, exactly. And I think a lot of people are just wanting to do the angry pitchforks and everything on Twitter to be really? like, you're the guy, you're the one guy. But as you said, Jeter is in. He's in with a ridiculous amount. Well, you know, 99%, whatever it is. As we've talked about before, I'm more concerned about those guys who give their votes to somebody who didn't deserve a Hall of Fame vote. Those are the guys that I want the explanation from because the guy who didn't vote for Jeter can give the same one that everybody else has forever and ever and ever. If Babe Ruth wasn't a Hall of Famer on his first ballot, or unanimous Hall of Famer, I should say, on his first ballot, then Derek Jeter isn't a unanimous Hall of Famer on his first ballot, and I'm the guy that's going to make sure. And yeah, I'll look at the guy cross-eyed and go, all right, I guess, but at least I understand it. I don't understand voting for somebody who is clearly not Hall of Fame worthy. That's the explanations that I'm always curious about getting. Yeah, some of the guys end up voting for players that they covered for a long period of time is kind of a nod because to make the Hall of Fame ballot, I mean, there's certain things, certain bars uh, that you have to reach uh, in terms of your overall service time and accomplishments. So it is, I want to say, an honor to be on a Hall of Fame ballot, but that doesn't make everyone that goes on the ballot a Hall of Fame caliber player, if that makes sense. And that obviously is what the voting process is for. That aside, I do kind of wonder what, possible other explanation could there be for not voting for Derek Jeter than you just did it either out of spite or to send a message of some sort along the lines that you were saying and this really shouldn't be the place for that anymore and it is kind of a tired topic and I'm sure we're not going to spend a whole bunch of more of our time talking about it but I was really hoping that when some of these ballots went public and we could salt this thing away sooner than later but who knows? Maybe at some point somebody's going to come out and say, hey, I found it out because investigative minds get on it and who knows what could happen here. Well, like you said, they've already got it narrowed down to probably what, less than 50 ballots that we should be able to kind of sift through and, close. and take a look at. And if any of those ballots come from Boston, maybe we can sift it down a little mm. bit further. Although I have a feeling that most Red Sox uh baseball writers are going to appreciate the history of the game and what Derek Jeter was all about and are not going to leave him off their ballot. But maybe somebody out there has got some reason for it. We just may never know. It, it may be years from now. Maybe there'll be a, an ESPN 30 for 30 on the one vote that Jeter didn't get. I could 100% see that happening. See what I did there? Very good. All right. Some troubling news for the Mets. Reports <laughs> this week that the majority sale of the team to billionaire Stephen Cohen has reportedly hit a major snag and will not happen. On Thursday, Commissioner Rob Manfred said, quote, there is not going to be a transaction, end quote. That means the Wilpons and Mets fans will continue their wonderful relationship for the foreseeable future. I just feel awful for Mets fans. They were so happy when this was announced. They were thrilled. Even if it was going to take five years to get the, everything transferred over, they were thrilled the Wilpons would not be running this team anymore, and now they have the rug pulled out from under them, and it goes right back. I'm not sure what happened with Cohen. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I'll be honest. I didn't follow it that closely because I'm not a Mets fan, and quite frankly, I don't get in billionaires' pockets when it comes to them buying teams and stuff, but I just feel awful, awful for those Mets fans that thought they were finally, finally done with the ownership that they have running things, and we're looking for a bright, shiny new day, and now they don't get it. Yeah, you know from watching a lot of baseball in the National League East, there's a phrase, at least I know it around here. I don't know if you um, knew it as much up there around the Washington Nationals, but the phrase when something went wrong for the New York Mets, that that is so Mets. Whether it was an yes. injury or some other weird story or a combination of the two, that is so Mets. When something just gets messed up and bungled and just not handled properly, that was a phrase that was always slapped on it if it came from that part of the city. And unfortunately for the New York Mets fans who have been kind of long suffering through the management style of the Wilpons, this story did not have a happy ending for them. The club has said as of Thursday night, they do intend to find another buyer, but finding a new controlling owner for the franchise doesn't seem to be any closer to happening when you have a billionaire hedge fund manager who can't get this deal closed, 
I'm really fascinated to see what the details of all of this are going to be. Uh, Rob Manfred did say that it's unfair to jump on the will ponds immediately for this, but I don't know, Bill, given some of the things that we've heard and seen and experienced that uh, come out of the Mets organization the last few years, it's kind of hard to give the will ponds the benefit of the doubt, if you will. Yeah, and, and more to the point, we talked about it when it went down, that, that Steve Cohen is a Mets fan, so they were getting one of their own, which is always something, I think, as a fan base that you want your guy to be that invested in your team as long as he's making right decisions. Because as we know here in Washington, on the football side of things, the owner was a huge fan of the team when he was a youngster and is unable to put them back on the map that way. So sometimes it's be careful what you wish for. But I think in this case that Cohen was going to do them right. He had, as we mentioned, a ton of money. So they were going to be able to freely spend if they needed to. It's just a devastating spot for them. Somebody will come along and buy them because – Everybody wants to be in that club of, a, of of owning a professional team if you got the money. It just seemed like this was a great marriage coming for the Mets. Yeah, it seemed like one of those things that finally came together and this was going to be a guy who'd already kind of bought into the Mets on a minority stake in terms of ownership, that this was going to be the answer to a lot of prayers, if you will, for Mets fans to see their club go in a different direction. And now that is not to be. But that does wrap up. Our starting nine, a whole lot of uh, legalese, maybe more than we wanted uh, in some cases over the last month or so. But, Bill, I'm very excited to know that spring training is going to be beginning in the next few days. And we're less than two weeks away from exhibition baseball. And that has me looking very much forward to seeing what happens between the white lines as opposed to everywhere else. Oh, absolutely. And I can't believe that we are now, again, as you said, just a couple weeks away from Uh, actual baseball, looking at lineups, looking at statistics, all of that stuff. It's much better than trying to seek out uh, Hall of Fame ballots or listening to guys that are have been banned for 30 plus years trying to get uh, back in the baseball's good graces. So, yeah, let's get the games going so we can kind of get all this behind us. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing who's going to win that 26 man in terms of the roster that has expanded this year. Who's going to be the fifth starter for probably a dozen clubs or more. You know, who's going to win the third base job for Atlanta? That's, of course, something Braves fans have got their eye on. A lot of good stories going to be happening across both the Grapefruit League and the Cactus League, and I'm looking forward to following a lot of those and chatting them up with you. So I appreciate your time, as always, and I hope that you have a wonderful weekend. Appreciate it. Love it. And uh, everybody out there listening, have a great weekend as well. We'll do it again soon. So that does it for this episode of From the Diamond. As always, find the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Ratings and reviews appreciated. Keep those coming. Connect on Twitter at From the Diamond underscore where you can find the show. I am at Grant McCauley and Bill is at Bill Roland on Instagram at From the Diamond and I am at Grant McCauley there. Remember, got that giveaway going. February 12th is the day, so make sure you follow and like the post. I'll be picking that winner when Braves pitchers and catchers report on February the 12th down to Northport as spring training begins. So once again, my thanks to Bill Rowland for joining the show and my thanks to you for listening to From the Diamond. We will catch you next week as spring will have sprung and pitchers and catchers will be getting their work in and we'll be moving toward actual exhibition baseball, which is less than two weeks away. Once again, thanks for listening. I'm Grant McCauley. We will catch you next time. Until then, so long, everyone. <laughs>